Thank you, my friends, for listening to the podcast. I'm Spencer Hughes. I want to tell you about one of my sponsors, and then we're going to dive right into this fascinating conversation about space, space exploration, our universe, and beyond. I want to tell you about my friends at Riverdance Soapworks. I'm so excited because they have the best products I've ever used in terms of self-care products, my favorite soaps. I'm kind of a girly man, if you must know. I'm a girly man, and I like artisan soaps. These are the best I've ever used. Bath salts and fizzies, lip balms, body butters, room and body spritzers, gift boxes for everyone on your list for every occasion. Please check out RiverdanceSoapWorks.com. Tell them Spencer Hughes sent you and they'll put some extra magic in your box with every order. Please check them out, RiverdanceSoapWorks.com. And remember, please show your support for the podcast. There's many ways you can do that just by listening to the episodes, sharing the episodes with everyone you know, and also contributing if you can. I have premium content on Patreon you can subscribe to anywhere from a dollar a month to a hundred dollars a month at the sponsorship level i am not too proud to beg it's not really begging i'm providing a lot of content here for you so it's not begging i'm not asking something for nothing i'm giving you a lot in return if you would like to show your appreciation for what i do here and trying to spread positivity and good vibrations please donate to the podcast from venmo you can donate to radio spencer also paypal.me slash radio spencer and i also have the cash app there's different ways you can contribute to the podcast you can find them all or most of them at hughesfromtheheart.com i had to think about my website for a second hughesfromtheheart.com slash support thank you in advance and thanks to all who have already supported the podcast. I'm so excited about our interview here with our guest. I have a lot of cool people that we talk to here on the podcast, but I have been fascinated with the subject of space and space exploration since I was a little kid. And that's where most of us get this love for space as kids, when our imaginations are kind of at their peak and we haven't been told by all the adults in our life that things are impossible. And it's just really I mean, space, the final frontier. Let me write that down. Space, the final frontier. That, that could be a good intro to something. I'll have to- <laughs> Our guest is David Aguilar, who's an internationally recognized astronomer. He's an author. He's a, I, I, this, these illustrations, David, are just blowing me away. I mean, you're multi-talented here. Welcome to Hughes from the Heart. Uh, thanks a lot for being with us. Wow, Spencer, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, you and I have a commonality here. We uh, grew up not too far away from each other. I grew up in the concrete jungle of San Francisco, and you grew up in a little more pastoral area, which I would have loved to have grown up in, in the Santa Clara Valley, which is just beautiful. And uh, I was born and raised in San Francisco, first 24 years of my life, lived in the East Bay. Later, before moving to Washington State, lived in uh, Placer County, up towards uh, kind of halfway between Sacramento and Lake Tahoe. And it, it sounds like you, like most of us, fell in love with space at a very young age. Why don't you tell us what drew you into what ended up being a career for you? You know, actually, it's kind of odd. It was my grandmother's basement where she had all of these old life magazines and Saturday evening, Saturday night posts. And I would go down in her basement and look at these uh, wonderful old magazines, especially the one that had the picture of Marilyn Monroe on the cover. If you ever discover that issue, you'll see in the upper right-hand corner, it says, are UFOs real? 
And oh. there it was. It was UFOs and science fiction movies that uh, really drew me into the uh, the science, astronomy, and the wonderment of what might be out there. And this was when, like, flying saucers, is this kind of the flying saucer phenomenon? It seems like we never talked about it. And then all of a sudden, it was everywhere in pop culture and science uh, magazines and things like that, radio shows. How did that come about, by the way? this uh, A lot of people say, well, because of Roswell, you know, and things like that. And I have different views on that whole thing. But how did that happen where all of a sudden it was this fascination with disks and space and, and the possibility of life on other planets? It seems like it was at the 40s the 50s when was this really it really took off in the 50s um the first inkling we have that there's anything going on in the skies came from many of the pilots in world war ii who picked up what they call foo fighters these lights that followed them as they were flying on on missions that were trailing behind them but in the 50s it seemed to go global because they were seeing these things in france and germany all over the world and suddenly it became news And consequently, it got a lot of global coverage that suddenly the world was aware. The science fiction movies followed. Uh, They certainly keep the pulse on what people are interested in. And suddenly we had this wave of, of UFO alien movies that came out. So that's how it really got into everybody's minds and the, the general public. My favorite, speaking of magazines, growing up, as many of us grew up with, was National Geographic. I finally had to sell off my issues because it was just taking over my bookshelves. I had so many issues of National Geographic. I loved them from just different countries and cultures and outer space and inventions and innovators and, and, and people discovering different things. This is fantastic. You have a book out that's in its second edition right now called Space Encyclopedia, A Tour of Our Solar System and Beyond. You've written it and illustrated it. It is a gorgeous uh, work. It, it's a it's a work of art. Honestly, I'm not just blowing smoke. This is a very enjoyable read, and I'd have to say it's for kids of all ages. A lot of people think this stuff might just be you know for kids learning about space for the first time, but I found this just as accessible for a nearly 50 year old dummy like me to understand as it would be for you know kids loving the illustrations and things like that. Thank you. You know, that's one of, it, it's one of the surprises I, I get every once in a while. I'll get a nice letter from a parent who said, uh, bought this for my child, and I was reading it to them, and oh my gosh, all of a sudden I understand this stuff. And uh, I get as, just as many letters from grandparents and parents as I do from kids. Space is just one of those things that's so confusing to me. And I can only imagine this is why kind of the ancients and our ancestors were even more confused because they didn't have people like you writing books with explanations and theories and things like that. They just looked up at the sky and said, what the heck's happening, right? There's a big fireball going through the sky. I think we're all going to die here. Um, (laughs) But it still is mysterious in many ways with as much as we know now, it's still a mystery and we're learning new things all the time. And we were talking about, you know, how this is in a second edition. And you jokingly said that's because, you know, there's been a few up updates of of new discoveries and information. Here's one question I had for you that's kind of maybe a big one to start off with, but this whole idea from when I was a kid that space was never ending, I can't to this day wrap my head around something that doesn't end because life as we know it ends, everything ends, the sun goes down, the sun comes up, daylight ends, darkness ends. Can you help explain in as simple a way as possible, A, how do we know that? Like, how do we know what the furthest reaches of space look like to know that it's an ever-expanding phenomenon 
And, and how is it even possible? I can't wrap my head even all these years later that something could have no end. Like it just keeps stretching and it's stretching into what, right? Like, is that the $20 million question? What was in that space before it keeps expanding? Like, what is it expanding into and how is this happening? Okay. Whoa. All right. We've jumped right into, uh, in, into the end here. Let's, let's, <clears throat> I have never done, I've never done LSD, by the way. I've never done LSD. I've never done, uh, you know, hallucinogenic drugs, even though I went to UC Berkeley for four years, I never did. So that's not coming from like a drug, a drug induced, you know, state. I'm just really curious, like the fabric of space, if you will, like what, what is it? What, what's going on here? We're jumping into a field called cosmology, and now we're, we're going to go where even some of our instruments don't go. But but this is what we know today. It changes. The first major discovery about our universe that caught us by surprise was that everything that we looked at, galaxies, seemed to be moving away, moving through space as if some monstrous event had happened that sent them on their way. And we realized that... The speed that they were moving away, now this is back in the 40s and the 50s and in the 60s, that there was this event that we nicknamed the Big Bang. Actually, it was nicknamed as a joke. You know, what was there, some big bang or something? And the name stuck. Wow. And it appears there was a moment when all of this created and it began. So we realized there was a beginning to our universe. When we look out into outer space, every galaxy, city of stars, we live in the Milky Way galaxy, but there's billions of other galaxies out there. They're all moving away from whatever this creative event was. And we were comforted in that they were expanding into something that we couldn't describe, but the something exists. It's like an empty room that we're expanding into. But then we realized that the room was expanding. It is getting bigger. And so that was the expansion of the universe. We took that with the data that we had as being real. There was this event and that the universe is expanding until we decided to measure how quickly it is expanding. Because we thought, wait a minute, if there was an event, think of a, a stick of dynamite blowing up and blowing all the dirt in away from it in, into the air. If there was this event, is it slowing down? Will it eventually come to a halt? Will it maybe collapse on itself again? Maybe the beginning of our universe was just an event that has happened before. The universe explodes into being. It slows down, stops, reverses, and all comes back together again. So maybe the universe, the creation of it, is a cycle. There's been other universes before us. We just happen to be one. There'll be another one in the future. So that's what we were thinking. So we decided to measure these galaxies and see how fast they were moving. And in the late 90s, holy mackerel, we made this discovery. They're speeding up. Everything in the universe is flying apart faster and faster and faster. And we couldn't figure out why. Some, For some reason, the universe is stepping on the gas pedal and it's moving away further, faster, faster than it should be. That's when we realized that a majority of the universe, everything out there we take for granted, we don't know what it is. It's invisible to us. What we see when we see stars and galaxies and planets and gas clouds are only a tiny percent, somewhere between 7 and 10% of the universe. Everything else is unknown to us. It's there. It's like a ghost in the room. Wow. But we can't see it. 
then here, here we go. Now we realize that the universe is speeding up faster and faster and faster. And someday it's literally going to rip itself apart. It will cease to exist. Everything that we know, everything we see in the sky at night, everything Hubble has photographed will disappear. It will end. Our universe will end. Well, you know, my heart rate, I'm looking at my Fitbit and my heart rate is 477 beats a, a, a minute. Is that bad? This is making me both very excited and very, very nervous. <laughs> no, 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 no. Put this on your refrigerator that, that hundreds of billions of years from now, the universe is going to end. So okay. when it happens, you will say, oh, I've been on my refrigerator the whole time. I knew it. Yeah, right. anyway, <laughs> so, so this isn't going to happen like a week from Thursday. This is we're OK for now. No, we're, we're good. But Spencer, here's the most amazing part of all of this. There appear to be other universes coexisting right next door to us. Wow. We're just one universe of multiple universes. And each one of those universes will be structured differently. Time will run differently. It might run backwards. It might run slower. It might run faster. Uh, the laws of physics may be different within these universes. Some of them will be sterile. There will be no life at all. Others will be teeming with weird life that we can't even begin to imagine. So our universe is just one of multi-universes existing out there. Is this kind of what people like laymen like myself call, we hear the, the multiverse theory. Is that kind of what that is? That this is happening right now? Wow. That's what it is. It's happening right around us. This is all really, really incredible stuff. And I've always thought this. I, I believe, and not to get into stuff like this because it's kind of philosophy and religion, but I believe we were created. I, I think we've kind of personified God more than we should have. I don't see God as a person, you know, sitting on a cloud with a thunderbolt in their hand. But I, I think we were created. But it leads me to ask the question, if we were created, why so much blank canvas? I've always kind of, from when I was a kid, I thought of it as a big canvas. If you had the biggest canvas in the world, right, and you bring in the artist of all artists, and the artist comes up and he dabs his brush into the paint, and you're waiting for him or her to create a huge, you know, tapestry or something, and they put one dot in some random part of that tapestry and then walk away and say, I'm done. It would make sense to me and this this whole thing is mind-boggling to me because what is the do we know the purpose of all this stuff out there we look at with our eyes and the things we can't see with our eyes like why is it there why why is there maybe billions of miles in between this rock and that rock and what is what is the reasoning do we know through science or the speculation as to what all this stuff is and why seemingly there's so much nothingness i don't believe we're the only life forms out there i think there has to be other life forms out there but how come we haven't like hung out with them on zoom like this how come we haven't met them how come they haven't you know landed in our backyard and just you know, had tea with us and stuff like, is there in your view other life out there and why all the seemingly nothingness out there? Well, scientists don't really look at it that way. They look at it as this is what we see. They don't ask the reason why, unless they're looking to figure out how a star forms or how galaxies come together or what this mysterious force called dark energy is that's pushing everything apart. And uh, they look at it that way. They don't ask, why did the universe begin? The, those are questions that don't come up in science because those are human questions. And science can't answer 
questions on that level. They can say, why do electrons move around a proton and a neutron in an atom? Why can we split an atom? But they don't ask, why did atoms come into being? Unless you want to take a look at the universe as an evolving arena that changes continuously, and then we can answer those questions. But what you're asking is more of a philosophical, religious question, and that's an area science doesn't go into because it can't replicate it. It can't make it happen over and over again. And unless you can make something happen over and over again, it it, it doesn't compute with the scientific mind. In other words, unless you can make a vaccine over and over and over again, once you've made the discovery... <laughs> They can't make ghosts appear. Uh, scientists can't can't do these sorts of these these uh, areas that uh, theologians look at. So there's this difference. Why does it exist? That's a human question. Hmm. I'm not sure aliens would ask that. And speaking of aliens, we always it's it's always fascinating me that we always in pop culture and from Roswell and reported UFO sightings and alleged abductions, they all seem to have the same look, like the big heads, the big oval eyes, um, the long fingers. They're skinny and naked, and they look kind of like us. They're bipedal, and I've always thought if that's like us personifying aliens, the way we personified God, to you know, God, you know, we were made in God's image, but God could have been a flower, you know, for all we know, God, aliens, you know. What if an alien is like a hummingbird? What if that's an alien? I mean, how do we, where do you think that came from? Was that us just personifying and trying to make it easy to explain if, if we see aliens, they must look like us? I mean, if they're from gazillions of galaxies away or something, why would they look like us? I mean, isn't it possible an alien could be an amoeba or it could be as big as a planet? I mean, I've always been fascinated by that. Like why this view that aliens, you know, have fingers and toes and eyeballs and heads and things like that? You know, that's a really good question. And I will say out of all the 12 books I've done for National Geographic, the most difficult, the most challenging, and the most fun was a book I wrote called Alien Worlds. And what I decided to do was to take seven planets that we have discovered using the Hubble Space Telescope and other instruments that really do exist out there. They're sort of like Earth, but they're different. And they're different in, in ways that would change the life that would live on these worlds. And then what I had to do is go back and populate every one of those worlds with multiple creatures that would survive on those worlds. And here's what I found. There are certain shapes in life that work. Fish are shaped like torpedoes because when you move through water, that torpedo shape really works. You can't be a big square moving through. Uh, you, you need different types of shapes to adapt to that environment. Hands work well. Feet work well. And centralizing your nervous system so all your reactions take place on a human body works quite well. But there's other animals on this planet that don't look like that that function just as smartly as we do. So you can take that is there are principles in biology that say these structures really work over time. However, the majority of all life, the most successful life on Earth is microscopic. Wow. And here's one of the really weird things we've covered about life. It's once it starts on a planet, it's almost impossible to destroy it. Now, 
We may disappear. The trees you see around you right now may disappear, but other life will survive on a planet regardless of what the conditions are unless you blow the planet up. If a star goes out and it stops shining, there still will be life living 16, 20 miles underground that has no communication with the surface. It doesn't care. It will be microscopic. But the weird thing is once life begins on an alien planet, it stays, it binds with the planet, it becomes part of the planet, it creates surface changes on a planet, changes in the oceans created by life. So we have this intimate connection of life and inanimate objects like planets moving through space. So the forms that it will take, the way it will sense the universe, the way it will communicate, its knowledge will be very different than us. And as I said, Alien Worlds, it's a kid's book, but it was the toughest book I ever put together because I had to consider all of this. And I think in the book, there's only one alien that has two arms and two legs. The rest of them are very bizarre and very different. Some of them communicate with odors. I mean, there's all different ways you can have communications and, and creatures sensing their universe. So life in the universe will be broader than we ever imagined. And if you don't think so, just think of this little factoid, 98% of all the different forms of life that have ever lived on the earth are extinct. They're gone. Wow. We're the 2%. What you see around you today, the trees, the dogs, the birds, the bugs, that's the 2%. And it will change again. Come to this planet 10 million years from now, 100 million years from now, the life will look entirely different. This is unbelievable. It's fascinating stuff. Uh, are you impressed as a modern day innovator and scientist and astronomer with what people hundreds of years ago were able to do? I, I'm fascinated when I look at even the pyramids. And I know that's not related to space. And well, some people think it is. <laughs> but how did, you know, if you try to build a pyramid today, like uh, the pyramids, you know, in Giza, would you be able to do it? You know, is the question. And how would we do it today? And how did they do it so many hundreds and thousands of years ago? How did they do this? How did uh, Galileo come up with, with what they did when they had such limited, in the whole scheme of things anyway, limited technology? And of course, some of these theories have been disproven. I mean, it was once believed that everything revolved around the earth, and we realize that's not correct. But are you impressed by what they were able to do in their time and in their historical period? I, I'm certainly impressed. I just was at the pyramids a year and a half ago again. I, I had to go back to take a look at them, and they are aligned to stars in the sky because they utilize those stars to tell the change of the seasons. And when certain stars would arise, they had sighting tubes inside of the pyramids. They could look out, and when a certain star at at dawn arose in the sky and meant the Nile was going to start to overflowing and uh, their crops needed to be in the ground. So they used these objects using the sky to help them get through their daily lives. Now, Galileo is an interesting case because Galileo, when he put his telescope together, he didn't invent it. He'd heard that there were these optic tubes in France and, and he realized what they were doing with the lenses and how they put together. So he created his own telescopes, but initially he sold it as a military weapon. Wow. He took it to the Doge. He took it to 
to Venice? Oh, absolutely. In the tower. And he said, look at this. It's it's an eight power telescope. It's nothing. It's like a pair of one side of a monocular. He said, look at this. You can see ships sailing into the harbor before you can see them with the unaided eye. So in other words, we know who's coming in and whether they're enemies or not. Isn't this a great military weapon? We can take a look at the field over there and see how many troops they have. We can magnify it. So he was a businessman. He took his telescope and said, this could be used to help us in our military activities. But he was also a professor. And one night, he takes it outside and does something that nobody really had systematically done before. He points it at the moon. And he says, oh my gosh, there's holes in the moon. Because at that time, everybody said, according to beliefs, the moon was a perfect round sphere. The dark parts on the moon were oceans. We call them mare. That's Latin for oceans. There were oceans on the moon, just like there's oceans here on the earth. And look at the moon in the daytime. If you see a full moon in the daytime, yeah, those bl- it looks blue. So they thought it had oceans. He says, no, no, it's pockmarked. It has craters. And so he immediately realized he'd made a major discovery. He turned and looked at Jupiter. And remember at this time, everything orbited the earth. The earth was the center. God had created the earth. Everything moved around the earth. He looked at Jupiter and he saw four little lights, stars, he called them. He said, how weird that those four stars would line up just like that behind Jupiter. The next night it rained. The next night he went out and looked again. Oh my gosh, the stars had moved. Wait a minute. They shouldn't move. They're stationary. What's going on here? He looked the next night. They'd moved again. He realized there were moons orbiting Jupiter. Not everything orbited the Earth. Then he pointed it towards the sun, and he projected the sun on his wall, and he saw spots on it. The sun's not perfect, but the Bible tells us the sun is perfect. It's not. It's got blemishes on it. And lastly, the coup de grace that did it is he went and looked at the Pleiades, the seven sisters, the constellation group that's in our sky tonight right now. And instead of the seven stars you can see with the unaided eye, he saw 50, 60, stars. And it said in the Bible, everything had been revealed to man. There is nothing else out in the universe that exists that hasn't been revealed. And he said, wait a minute, this telescope tells me there's a lot more out there that we haven't seen. The Bible is not correct. That's what got him into hot water, into trouble. Every discovery that he made with this tiny little 20 power telescope that you can buy at Walmart for (laughs) $39.95. Changed everything. Changed everything. Changed everything. And it was the first instrument a scientist ever used to extend human senses. Soon, Robert Hooke was using a microscope. He was discovering a world that none of us could see because our eyes couldn't see these tiny little things. But there it is. There's creatures living we can't see. So these were the first instruments that blew open the doors and created real science. Unbelievable. My wife and I were talking about this last night. I told her how excited I was to be talking with you. And we have these kind of far out theories, maybe watching too many movies growing up. I don't know. But how do we know? We're not like our universe is not the goop on the bottom of a giant's sandals, things like that. You know, I always think things like that. Like, how do we know we're not just this little tiny, we think we're all that and we have all this stuff going on on this planet. And how do we know we're just in the whole scheme of things, just a flake of dandruff on the almighty's collar or something? 
It's weird, isn't it? I mean, you think about all these things like we think we know something, but maybe we don't. Or we're going to look up one day like maybe a koi looks up from the pond because I've always heard the theory that the koi doesn't really care what's going up on up above. Sometimes people throw it food and stuff and it knows it's coming from the surface, but its whole world is in that pond. That's the only world it needs. That's like the universe for the koi is that pond. It doesn't really care what's happening above it or below it or on the side of it. One of these days we're going to look up and there's going to be some giant looking down on us and it's going to flick us with their, with their finger. It may well be. And that's, that's to me the fascination of astronomy. We continually, continuously learn new things. We continuously have to reshape our thoughts, our ideas based upon discoveries that continuously keep rolling in the door. To me, I, I love that. Some people like a world that never changes. It is comforting to them. This is what I know. It's always been this way. It'll always be this way. My mind as a young explorer, never worked that way. I, I realized that change is inevitable, except maybe from a vending machine, mm-hmm. but uh, <laughs> it's going to continue. It's going to continue. And I love that change. I love expanding my knowledge base. And yes, there is more out there than we can't even begin to imagine. And that's the fascination for me. I think uh, for a lot of people, uh, going back to even early silent movies, you know, the the man's first trip to the moon or whatever it was, and and we thought different things of the moon before we landed on the moon. And uh, the whole vision fascinates me of ancient peoples looking up at the same sky we're looking up at and seeing this thing up in the sky. I know we're kind of winding down sort of our time together, but I, w- I would love, by the way, if you didn't totally hate our experience together, have you on again, because obviously, speaking of the universe, we're touching like one thousandth of what we could be talking about. There's so many things we could do a whole series together where we'd barely touch anything, you know? So I appreciate your time, but what is the best believed or or, or strongest theory of the moon? I've heard everything from it it was a chunk of the earth that got blown off and went into orbit and just kind of stuck around. Just different theories on the moon, everything from, you know, there used to be life on the moon and we're hiding alien bases on the moon. We've been fascinated by the moon since the beginning, I would imagine. What is it? Why is it there? And what would happen if the moon disappeared? I've heard theories on that too, that we need the moon to be there. Is that true that the earth's kind of balance and the whole scheme of things is predicated on what the moon is doing? Spencer, we need to do a whole new show. The last book just before this one I finished is called Luna, the Science and Stories of Our Moon. Wow. We get to do every single book. I would, I would, I'm, I'm, dead serious here. I want to talk with you about every book you've written, I think, because you're one of the... I've been doing this almost 30 years. You're one of the most fascinating guests I've I've, I've spoken with. Political leaders, authors, scientists, innovators, inventors, and you are one of the most fascinating people I've ever talked with. I just want to tell you that. Oh, well, thank you. I'd love to do it because there's so many different books I've written that that we could take a look at. And but, But you're right. Let's go back about the moon. The moon has always fascinated us. And uh, it's some people believe it turned us into werewolves. Some people believe that if you had tuberculosis, you put your child out in the field at night so the magic moonbeams could heal them on their bare chest. I wow. Mean, the moon has been part of our lives because it's so bright and it keeps showing up every month because month is taken from the moon, the month. We even used it to calibrate our lives. Uh, imagine, imagine that, yes, in fact, we think right now it was a huge object about the size of Mars, which means it was half the size of Earth. Earth's 8,000 miles in diameter. This thing's about 4,000 miles. We crashed into each other. And for a short period of time, Earth had a series of rings that looked like Saturn. It was gorgeous. But quickly, these rings smashed back together again and became our moon. So the moon is us. 
It's part of us. And when the universe ends, when our sun turns into a red giant and it expands and grows and grows in size, it's going to rip the moon apart and push it right back into the earth. The moon's coming home. It's going to rejoin with its planet Earth. I hope it doesn't happen during rush hour on a Monday or something. That would really kind of suck, huh? If it happens at a bad time. Uh, or the Academy Awards or the Super Bowl. I'm hoping it, it misses those too. <laughs> Boy, that is just incredible. And then obviously there's whole theories. I'm sure you've explored this as well and touched on this. You know, the conspiracy theories that we didn't really go to the moon, that it was all fabricated, that the lighting. How do people know all that? I mean, is that, you know, the, the, the Neil Armstrong, if it was really, it would have been so overpoweringly beautiful. He just kind of got up there and he's like, wow. This is kind of cool. And he's, he wasn't totally mesmerized and blown away. And Buzz Aldrin, who I had the opportunity to meet years ago at a book signing, you know, you know, these guys would have been so speechless. They would have like lost connection with Houston because they wouldn't have even known what to say. It was so incredibly beautiful. But or the lighting, the shadows were wrong. What, what, is there any way as an astronomer that you could or would put to rest the millions of conspiracy theorists out there that say we, we couldn't possibly have landed there? Why do they think it's so impossible that we could send a rocket ship and land on the moon? I don't know. I, 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 I look at conspiracy theories as simply a lack of knowledge or um as we found today with social media i think social media may be one of the most destructive technologies we ever created because it allows misinformation to travel so quickly and beliefs people have is reinforced by by non-scientific non-verifiable information uh, when somebody says to me i believe um that tells me that there may not be any basis behind it of facts. It's just a feeling and an emotion, a, a way to cope with the world. So there are contrarians out there that will say, you know, we never went to the moon. The earth is flat. Uh, I've never, I've never understood that one. How do they get, how do they get away with that one? When we see images of the earth as a, as a globe, I've, I've never understood that. Or like we, we sail from one end to the other and we don't fall off. I mean, it's a conspiracy because when you look out at the horizon, it looks flat. But here's the, here's the get-go on that. I've been on ships in the middle of the Atlantic doing Atlantic crossings, and I've gone out. And if you have a wide enough field of view, if you let your eyes look at the horizon, you can see that it is actually slightly curved. Absolutely. Even the human experience can pick that up. That's why I don't get why it's not so easily shot. I mean, I mean, I remember my parents used to take me up to Mount Diablo. You know where that is, having grown up in the Bay Area, I and sure you can do. you could see the curvature of the Earth. I remember where I was standing, how old I was when my father showed me that for the first time, and I was blown away. He goes, "You get up there, and it's high enough that you can look out to the horizon. You could see the curvature of the Earth." It, it, it brings them pleasure. It brings them pleasure. I think sometimes in, in irritating other people when they want to uh, land on these these ideas. But um, that's that's the human species. It's the most peculiar species that's ever walked this planet, <laughs> and uh, it its ideas, its capabilities. We're the only species that's been able to physically change this planet, except for plants. Plants did it when they created a world that was full of oxygen and killed all the creatures that were living on the surface at that time were, that were surviving using methane, which was the most uh, abundant product on the earth. And so <clears throat> planets change and they're influenced by life and humans are changing this planet faster than any of the five mass extinctions that have ever taken place. We're doing it. 
in conclusion, at least to this interview, kind of as an introduction to you and Space Encyclopedia, tour of our solar system and beyond. David, what do you think are the, the prospects for humanity? Do you think there's a, there's a great number of people out there that believe we need to consider space exploration? You have Elon Musk sending rockets into space. We're being told that you know within a few years we'll be on other planets, maybe the moon colonizing it. And I, I don't know how much credibility there is to that. Is Do you see a need for this? Is it impending? Is it something in the next several thousand years we might have to do as a species to survive? Is it something we ever have to do? And I, I've i always thought this, I thought this back when I was a kid too, that we're just going to go to another planet and mess that up too. You know what I mean? Like we're going we're gonna to litter on that planet. We'll have graffiti on that planet. We'll have crime. We'll have bad politicians on the, those planets too. We're just going to replicate what the mess we're doing here. And we're just going to slowly do that. Obviously, there's a lot of planets to disrupt. So it would take us, you know, eons to accomplish that. But do we need to take rockets off the earth and, and get get off this rock and go somewhere else? I would say simply yes. Yes, for this reason. There is something very peculiar about us as a species, and it started in Africa. There really was no reason for primitive man to leave Africa. Africa was a great place. It was warm. It was sunny. There were plenty animals to hunt and eat. But there is something about the human species, and we think it may come down to genetics, that there is a certain portion of our species that is born to wander and explore. It can't stay. It can't uh, remain in one area. It migrates and it moves. And so it moved out from Africa uh, into the Northern Territories, all the way around the world, uh, into the New World, coming across the ice bridges into Canada, into North America, into Central America, into South America. There's something about us that needs to explore. It drives us forward and it's who we are. And of all the creatures that have ever existed, we create the environment around our cells, clothing, housing, protection, weapons. And so consequently, we are the oddest creature that has ever existed on this planet in that way. And we will extend ourselves out into the solar system. And I'm hoping someday we extend out beyond. But when we do, it will be a one-way journey. We won't be coming back like Star Trek Mm. um, when you... uh, move through space, we will move in one direction and we may populate the planets that are around us. This may be what we're destined to do and who we are. We spread through the universe and move out. And as we do, we'll change. We won't look like humans. We may be combined with artificial intelligence. We may be combined with robotics so that we live longer, hundreds and thousands of years. But I think it's the destiny of who we are. We're we're the strangest creature that has ever existed on planet earth but it's our destiny to move out to the stars wow this is just i'm in awe honestly this whole thing and i I want people to pick up this book we'll tell them how in just a second and how to get in touch with you too what advice do you give to some young folks who might be listening to this podcast or people who have kids who are interested in pursuing a career in astronomy is it a field that could use obviously a a whole bunch of uh, big thinkers and people with big dreams and hopes of discovering you know being the next galileos of the future and things like that what do you what advice would you have for people out there maybe high school or even college age that want to pursue this as a career i would say that the career is wide open and working at harvard i worked with so many wonderful graduate students and undergraduate students from countries all over the world and i would just say it's an opening field it's a field with so many opportunities 
And here's the really weird thing, Spencer, that I will say. Movies and books can influence young people. When I used to go to astronomy conferences, I saw nothing but men, a lot of men, mostly all men, until Jodie Foster starred in Contact, and it was a young woman who suddenly was in the field. And within five years, I started noticing at these conferences more and more young women, more young women engineers. And I will say this, we are going to discover life in the universe within the next 15 years. And I'm going to bet it's a woman that makes a discovery because that is the field so many young women have moved into looking at exoplanets, the search for life in the universe. So I would say buy your children's books on outer space, watch television shows with them, discuss it, buy them telescopes if they want it, and they or find in your community a library that loans telescopes out or clubs that have evening viewing sessions <clears throat> you can take young people to. But let them expand, let them grow, give them the opportunity. My grandmother bought my first telescope. It was a tiny little telescope. But to me, that was the greatest gift I ever had. And from there, it created an entire career. And it changed the way I looked at life, the universe, and people around me. It started with a tiny little telescope. So I'd say, find the opportunity, uh, let them grow, and share the excitement with them. There is nothing, there's nothing more exciting than standing at the end of your driveway and looking at the craters of the moon or the moons of Jupiter or the rings of Saturn. There they are. And, and I show older people today from my observatory here in Colorado, and they'll say, oh, my God, the rings are real. And I think, what? You think we've been fooling you all this time? And those pictures, <laughs> are, But you see it for yourself and it becomes real. Well, maybe in closing here, and this is kind of dating the podcast, but that's okay because it's it's an event that isn't going to happen in any of our lifetimes ever again. Can we wrap up with a little explanation of what's going to be happening? Isn't it coming up here um, as we produce this podcast? Again, I, I rarely do this. I don't like dating it, but it is December 17th of the year 3127. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, 2020. We kind of wish it was 3127. Uh, and coming up, there's some, right? The two planets are closer together than they've ever been or something. Uh, I obviously don't know what I'm talking about, so I'll toss it to you to explain what is happening and when When was the last time it happened and when is it going to happen again? We're going to see a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, which means conjunction means a meeting. And it, there's two meanings for this. In, in the world of science today, a meeting means they're just coming close together and peer next to each other in the sky, although they are separated by millions of miles in between. They just look like they've come together and they're close together. And it's a wonderful event for us. And coming up, if you had a small little telescope, you could take a look and point it towards Jupiter and Saturn, this conjunction, and you'd see both of them in the eyepiece at the same time, which is something you never are able to do. But if you go back into history, a conjunction was a meeting of the gods. And every one of those planets were gods. Jupiter was the mightiest of the gods. Saturn was the grandfather of the gods. Mars was the god of war. Mercury was the messenger of the gods because it moved so quickly in the sky. So they thought they were real living entities up in the sky. So they would watch them very closely. And when two of these entities came together, they were obviously in conjunction holding a meeting. 
They were talking. They were discussing things, looking back down at Earth as to what they might do to the Earth. So people were paid a lot of attention to this. And what we find is that probably the most famous conjunction that ever happened happened in 2 B.C., because the Magi were astrologers. They were watching the planets, hoping to find something out that was going on. In 6 BC, Jupiter and Saturn, the grandfather and the mightiest of all the gods, got together in Pisces the fish, in the constellation Pisces, to talk. Pisces was a sign of this new group called the Christians. Oh, this is interesting. The mightiest gods are talking. They're holding a meeting in the sign of the Christians. In 2 BC, Venus, which is the brightest planet in our sky, came together with Jupiter, which is the second brightest star um, planet in the sky, and they hung right over Bethlehem. And the Magi living in Baghdad, looking west, would have said, oh, my God, look at that. This is the sign. This is the star. Because it couldn't be a comet. Comets were feared. It couldn't be a supernova because nobody recorded one at that time. This was something that the Magi would have looked at, gassed up the camels, and off they went. This was their sign. This was their star of Bethlehem, and it was two planets lining up. And now we get to see planets lining up once again. So these were events that were watched very closely. They were very meaningful and, in this case, changed history. Our guest has been David Aguilar. He's an internationally recognized astronomer, author of many, many books, including the one we've been talking about today, uh, Space Encyclopedia, A Tour of Our Solar System and Beyond. He wrote it. He illustrated it. It's available on Amazon. It's available at natgeokids.com. It's available in uh, bookstores if your bookstores are open. David, I I am blown away, honestly. I, I don't say that to everybody. This was just a wonderful time together. I'm sorry it went twice as long as I told you it would, but I just couldn't let you go. And I, I'm so happy to hear about all these other books because I would love to have you back uh, if you're willing to maybe spend some time on each one of these if they're you know available for people to check out as well. But such a wonderful time. Spencer, I had a blast. Let's do it again. Thank you, David. And is there another way for people to reach you or do you have a specific website you'd like to direct them to or, or an email or anything like that you want to give out? Sure. They can reach me at my website. It's simply aspenskies.com. Aspen, like Aspen, Colorado? That's just like Aspen, Colorado, because that's where I live. (laughs) Aspenskies, one word, dot com. And uh, they can see my artwork. They can see uh, fun things that are coming up in the sky, tours that I will be on. They can join me around the world. But I'm going to see if I can get Nat Geo to send you some books. Oh, my gosh. I would be absolutely thrilled. I'm, honestly, this this turned me into a little kid all over again back in the 70s looking up at space and just ah. being in awe. And I, I love that feeling. And I, I, I love chatting with you. One of these days when all this COVID mess is, is wrapped up, hopefully soon, um, if you ever make it to the Pacific Northwest, I'd love to uh, buy you dinner or buy you a soda or a cocktail or something and just hang out with you for a little bit because I, I think you're one cool guy and you're doing a great thing here, not just with your, your scientific background, but putting it into words in ways that people like me and older and younger can really understand things that are pretty mind-blowing to comprehend. So thank you, sir. Uh, And I look forward to chatting with you again. Stay curious, my friend. Thank you. I I think we will cross paths again. I hope so. Thank you very much.